You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Then you can turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 once again. This morning we continue to reflect on uh, some of the truths that flow out of Genesis chapter 3. I know it's a, a familiar chapter to us. I know we've already exhausted it um, pretty extensively, but not wanting to get away from it too quickly because really if you had to to um, to pick maybe two of the most important chapters in Scripture, Genesis 3 would have to be in that discussion and probably Romans chapter 3, uh, the truths that are communicated there. And so I don't want us to, to leave Genesis chapter 3 too quickly because of how important it is to really everything else we're going to see in the book of Genesis. Um, last week we highlighted some of the lasting results that we see from Adam and Eve's uh, sin in the garden. So we know from, from Genesis 3, uh, beginning in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say that, that the temptation existed there, um, that, that temptation was allowed, that God had communicated provision and goodness, uh, but then in the midst of that, ultimately, Adam and Eve had a, re- had a responsibility to respond to everything that God had done through that seven, weeks of cre- or seven days of creation, to respond to that in faith, and that that responsibility was placed upon them, and, and this is their, their opportunity. Will they trust in what God has said, or will they entertain the fact that perhaps God did not actually mean what he said? And so we've seen that Adam and Eve fall prey to Satan's temptation. They give in to uh, believing the fact that God is not good, that God is not in control, ultimately that they can be like God. And so it was an attack against God's holiness, his ability, or his, the fact that he is separate from his creation. And we see because of their choice that there are many lasting effects until Christ sets us, sets us free from those effects, that, that we're bound now to this idea of original sin, that because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are all born with the consequences of guilt and corruption, that we inherit that by nature. Um, and Scripture attests to the fact that, that we are born guilty, we are born with that guilt imputed to us, meaning that it counts against us, um, which, is why, um, which is why people can experience death before they really have an opportunity to choose to do wrong things, that they're born inherently guilty because of sin. Um, but that further than that, we're totally depraved in the sense that we are, we are bent towards sin. That sin affects our entire person. It renders us unable to do good things. And so we are, in a sense, now hardwired to rebel against God and to rebel against really all authority unless a change occurs in us. All of creation wants to respond to these truths by saying, let me fix myself. Let me, let me do good things to atone for my bad things. Let me offer sacrifices. Let me do whatever necessary to make things right between me and my creator. The problem that we see in Scripture is that to break one of God's laws is to ultimately break God's law. And it makes us guilty of everything. And that ultimately we've never seen an example of a good person that we can model our life after as though if we live this way, we will be okay. Christ is the only example of that, and Christ sets a standard of perfection that none of us can follow. And so it leaves us desperate, realizing that ultimately we have to be born again. What we're going to see from Genesis 4 and on is that really there's two two types of offspring that are produced from Adam and Eve. Um, We're going to see throughout Scripture that there's really two, two lines 
It really starts with the lines of Seth and the line of Cain, that, that you've got some that remain in rebellion, that remain uh, hostile towards God. And then you have those that are born again, as Jesus tells Nicodemus, that you're born into sin. The only hope that you have is to be born again, to be born again spiritually through the washing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Um, and so we're going to see that start to transpire as Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden, that need to be born again with a new nature. Adam was set up to, to be obedient, and had he been obedient, all of his offspring would have received life. But we know that Adam chose sin. And so we're in need of a better covenant, a covenant that involves Christ coming to be the better Adam. So we turn our attention again to Genesis 3.15. As God is handing out punishment to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that's the picture we get of those two different offsprings. One that is being rescued back to God and, and, and become enemies now of Satan and his will. Christ is the better Adam, according to the New Testament, that he fulfills the law. He reverses the curse. So we see that, that original sin that's still present because of Adam and Eve's sin, but God rescuing, rescuing us from that. We also discussed last week the present sin that still exists, the need to fight sin daily as a Christian. Um, and we talked about the, the importance of accountability, uh, seeking other people to walk with, to be able to confess things to, to be able to seek encouragement from. Um, I had the opportunity to, to call upon Ben yesterday, stuff that I'm dealing with at work, really weighing heavy on me right now um, and needing additional prayer for that. And so called Ben up yesterday or texted Ben and said, you know, in application from last week, I'm calling upon my spiritual doctor to help me right now, that I need, I need prayer, I need help, I need you to, to intercede for me. And so that's how that works. That's, that's, that's where I've got a support group that I can call upon and say, I'm in need of assistance. As I'm following Christ and, and trying to pursue righteousness in my life, there are times when I need help and being able to call upon others to help in that fight against sin. Um, we talked about ultimately the hope that we have is the eradication of sin. That in the end of here of Genesis chapter 3, that God communicates within that Trinity relationship. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. And so the idea that God prevents Adam and Eve from choosing sin forever... He removes them from the Garden of Eden so that their condition does not have to be permanent and that he can rescue them back and then offer the tree of life once again once they've been saved, once they've been redeemed so that their condition can then become eternal. And we see the tree of life pop up again and again in the New Testament um, as evidence of the fact that one day, if we're believers, if you're a believer this morning, you will partake of that one day as we enjoy God forever. Today I want to draw our attention uh, briefly to our fight and our salvation from sin as we as we presented the idea last week that sin is still very present it's still very real it's still um, necessary for us to battle against it that while Romans 6 says we've been set free from sin that we're no longer in bondage to sin that we still have to fight and work against sin um, and it really starts with with two different two different things that I want to present to you this morning number one understanding reality understanding reality as we wrestle with the battle and temptation of sin it starts with us really meditating on what reality is if we're going to fight sin if we're going to be victorious over sin if we're going to resist in ways that adam and eve did not 
it starts with us understanding reality. First in that, it means that there's an understanding by us that there's a certain defeat of sin. That there is a certain, a guaranteed defeat of sin. What we find in Scripture is that Jesus has defeated Satan. So when God promises in Genesis 3 that he's going to send somebody from Eve, an offspring of Eve, that will put enmity between her offspring and Satan's offspring, that has already been initiated in the work of Christ. Jesus has defeated Satan through his life. Jesus coming to live that perfect life. And we've talked before that that it was not sufficient for Jesus to just show up and die on the cross and that then we could be atoned for our sins That there was a perfection that was needed, a a perfect life necessitated if we were going to be healed. And in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus has defeated Satan. He's been tempted like we were, tempted like we are, and has defeated Satan by not yielding to sin. He's also defeated Satan through his death. And this is an evidence of the fact that Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything because Satan was instrumental in leading um, some of the events, obviously with God orchestrating everything, but Satan uh, pushing Christ to the cross, pushing the circumstances that led Christ to the cross, Ultimately to his own demise in Colossians two, fourteen through 15 or starting in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And this is this is an area I believe that Satan did not anticipate. He was not thinking this would be the outcome. It's a it's a great picture in C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, specifically in the movie where where the white witch thinks that she has won. She has killed Aslan. She has removed his presence. Now, seemingly, victory is, is ahead of her. And then with, with his resurrection, obviously, the whole story is set back the way that it needs to be. But there's a, a momentary feeling of victory. And there was three days there where Satan and his forces, because they are confined to time, they're created beings, believed that victory had been won. And then the day of the resurrection, obviously, imminent defeat once again presents itself to Satan and his forces. They were disarmed as sin was nailed to the cross in the form of Christ taking our sin upon himself. And then ultimately we're assured of this in eternity. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil And his angels, indicating to us that there is a certain destination for Satan and his forces that are already guaranteed for us. Revelation chapter 20, we see this uh, pictured again in verse 7. 
When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. He will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We get a glimpse of the future here. We know that there is a certain defeat of sin, which, which leaves us with an implication this morning. So in your notes, the implication is, is that choosing sin is choosing to be a part of the losing team. When we choose sin, we are choosing to be a part of the losing team. This is an advantage that Adam and Eve did not have, right? So, so they've been introduced to God the Father. They've been introduced to, to the Trinity. They're, 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 they have some level of interaction. We don't know how many days Adam and Eve were in the garden before they were tempted and before they fell. We know that God had communicated with them. So there's some knowledge there. There's some relationship there. But as far as we know, this is their first introduction, first interaction with Satan. So they have no history. They don't have red flags that, that they get thrown up as maybe they should. They have no history with him. They have no, no context for him. And so for them, for them, it, it's as though there are two options placed before them with really beyond what God has said, if you do this, you will die. They have no, no reason to not trust this other creation. They have no context to say, well, this is, this is a serpent, this is Satan, this is the devil, this is the one that will burn in the lake of fire forever. No, like they don't have that context. Whereas for us, that is an advantage offered to us. That when sin is presented to us in the form of our flesh, in the form of the things of this world, in the form of Satan and his forces, we know, we know where that leads. We know the result of those choices. And so as we seek to fight sin, it involves us meditating on reality, that there is a certain defeat for this path. Secondly, it's important for us to realize that there is a personal responsibility in our sin. We need to grasp the certain defeat of sin, but we also need to grasp the personal responsibility in sin. The Bible teaches us that we are responsible if we yield to sin. Romans 6 rather than escaping temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13, as Adam and Eve walk out of the garden, as they leave the, the, the safe confines of the garden and begin to explore God's creation in a new way, in an unfortunate way, they leave behind some safety. They now enter into a world that is cursed with sin. They enter into a world where they are shamed and, 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 and feel guilt over their actions now. And yet, the promise is there that every time sin presents itself again, every time temptation presents itself again, God has made a way of escape. That we're never put in a situation where our only choice, our only option is to sin, to disobey. That, that is completely contrary to Scripture if we were to argue that I had no other choice. I had no other choice but to choose sin here. That, that God left me with no other options. Scripture has promised that God always makes a way of escape from sin. The implication for us here is that it is our duty to make wise decisions. It is our duty to make wise decisions based on the Spirit's superior power. It is our duty to make wise decisions based on the Spirit's superior power. 
power and not shift blame. In 1 John 4, 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So when we, when we say that, that we are in bondage to sin and that we can't help but yield to sin, we are communicating that we do not believe this. We are also communicating that this is not true. To say that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and yet we cannot overcome sin is to say that he that is in the world is greater than he who indwells me. Because the assurance here in First John is that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, a Holy Spirit that indwells us and works in us and allows us to walk in his spirit. And he is greater, far superior than anything this world offers, any temptation that we can face. And so as we seek to fight sin in our life, we are to be reminded of what reality is. And Scripture gives us reality that there's a way of escape of temptation, that we've been equipped with a Holy Spirit that is more powerful than anything this world has to offer, and therefore we cannot shift blame. It's impossible to admit the reality of sin, or it is possible to admit the reality of sin while denying the guilt of sin. This is, this is what Adam and Eve do. God comes to Adam and Eve. Let's go back to, to Genesis 3 and see this. God comes to Adam and Eve, and you'll remember... They admit to eating of the, of the fruit. It says in verse 12, The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Remember we said that God doesn't come in all his wrath and just extinguish Adam and Eve. He comes gently. He comes as a father with loving discipline. And he comes questioning them wanting to pull them out of their sin, wanting to give them opportunity for confession. And so he gives them opportunity to admit what's going on here, but both both lean on circumstances before admitting to what they've done. And so what you essentially have here is them admitting that sin has taken place, but not assuming the guilt that they played in it. If you're asking me, did I eat of the fruit? Yes, I ate of the fruit. Am I guilty for doing it? No. No, because the woman that you gave me, she deceived me and and led me into it. Eve says, are you asking me if I ate of the fruit? Yes. Am I guilty of it? No, because the serpent led me into it. Like I get this all the time in my office when I bring middle school students in. Did you do this? Yes. Are you guilty of it? No. Because all of these reasons are why I chose to do it. And, and we are guilty of that at times as well. Did you do this? Are you, are, are, you, are you saying that this action took place? Yes. Are you guilty of it? No. No, I can tell you why it happened. I can excuse why it happened. I'm not held accountable for these. Did these actions take place? Yes. Is there guilt on me for them taking place? No. No. Our world is, our wor- our world is skilled in denying guilt. We deny it through context. Things like, you would have done the same thing if you were in my spot. We deny it through our upbringing. This is how my parents raised me. We deny it through personal history. You don't know what I've been through. We deny it through biology. It's just the way that I am. Our world is very good at dismissing the guilt. Admitting the action, yes. 
but dismissing the guilt in the action. Adam and Eve are the source of that. We have to fight against that. We are personally responsible for the choices that we make. It's not based on our context, not based on our upbringing. I've sat with students. I know their background. I know that they've been dealt a more difficult deck than me. I know they don't have a good upbringing. I know they don't have both parents in their life. And we talk through that, and it always comes back to the fact you are still responsible for what you do with it. You are still responsible. I don't care that you've, you've had all this stuff that you've gone through. I don't care that you've dealt with all these things. You still have a responsibility to make good choices moving forward. You cannot rely on your past. You cannot rely on your upbringing to excuse you for what you now do. Adam and Eve are the source of that. We have to fight against that. There's a certain defeat of sin. There's a personal responsibility in sin. And then lastly, there's an assured discipline for sin. There's an assured discipline for sin. What we have in Scripture is a promise that a loving father does not withhold discipline towards his children. So we, so we, want, to, we want to say that every time we choose the right thing, we do it based on seeing that Jesus is better. But at times when we don't really see that Jesus is better, the, the safeguard should be, this will result in discipline. So, so my motivation for choosing the right thing, for choosing to not eat of that tree, is because I've got all these other trees to eat from. But even when the tree looks good to me, the, the safeguard should have been, to eat of this would kill me. So I've got all these other trees, I should be not even worrying about this tree. But I'm drawn to this tree for whatever reason today, it looks better than it did yesterday. I want to eat of it. The, sec- the, the security blanket for us is, yeah, but it kills me. It, it kills me if I eat of it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet, res- yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those whom have been trained by it. The implication for us, If I'm a Christian, I'm inviting the intentional, painful response of God into my life when I sin. If I'm a Christian, I'm inviting the intentional and painful response of God into my life when I sin. That's reality for us. Reality is is that sin leads to death and destruction, and it has an eternal defeat ahead of it. There's personal responsibility in my sin. I can't excuse my sin on the basis of external factors. 
So I can't justify sin in saying, well, well, I'm going to sin because I'm not responsible, because reality is you are. And then lastly, the reality of Scripture says that to participate in sin as a believer necessitates that God will discipline you for it. And to choose sin is to really choose to invite God's discipline into your life. And I don't think any of us in, in, a, in a sane state of thinking would say, that's how I want God to interact with me, right? Like I hear that he's the father of lights that gives all good things. I'd like to set that aside for a second and get some of his painful response in my life. And yet that's what we are doing when we choose to sin. Or we're saying, I don't believe that God disciplines his children. I believe he's an illegitimate father that doesn't care, that's disconnected from his family, disconnected from his kids, not involved intentionally with them. And some of us had that. Some of us had that type of father that didn't care, that didn't care what we did. And we want to translate that to how God interacts with us. And what, what, what the author of Hebrews is saying, let's compare God to a, a, a ideal type father situation. A father who really loves his children is not going to just let them get away with sin and disobedience. He's going to step in and discipline them and steer them back. And so what we're inviting is that type of interaction. And it's never fun and it's never good in the sense that we desire it. It's good in the long run that God doesn't let us just wander off and, and not persevere. But it's certainly not something that we say, this is going to be awesome when I get disciplined for this. So I'm going to do this and get the discipline. God is always good to his children. It's not always desirable, though. And so what we're inviting is what God has promised, discipline into the life of a believer. So understanding reality. And then secondly, taking responsibility. So we, we said that there's personal responsibility. How do we take personal responsibility when it comes to our fight against sin? First off, realizing that my salvation is now based on faith and not performance. My salvation is now based on faith not performance. And sin is always rooted in unbelief. It's always not believing what God has said. So it's not believing that God said sin will lead to death, so I choose sin believing that it doesn't lead to death. So sin is always rooted in unbelief. But what we have here, Adam was the only human being, the only, let's see how to say this, he's the only human being beyond Christ who was both human and God. He's the only, only human being that had the option to be obedient to earn life. So the covenant of works was broken. Adam had the opportunity to be obedient and earn life for everybody, and he didn't, right? And so, so now all of us are born into sin. Our salvation is not based on performance now. Get this. When, when God disciplines Adam and Eve, God does not communicate to Adam and Eve that they better not ever do it again. You don't have that. You don't have, okay, you ate of the tree... I'm going to excuse it this time. I'm going to hand out some discipline. But if you do it again, then you're punished. God does not put performance back on Adam and Eve. You get that? He doesn't tell them, okay, our interaction is still based on your performance. There's no communication now about expectations for what they're supposed to do to get back into relationship with him. He doesn't communicate, don't do it again. God does not give them a new set of rules or a second chance. Instead, Adam and Eve are expected to believe what God has told them, that rescue is coming. See, I believe they walk out of the Garden of Eden as what we would label 
Christians, believers. Why? Because Adam looks at his wife Eve and names her Eve. Remember we said, what a weird place for that to be. Let's look at it again in Genesis 3. All this discipline by a loving father. Notice that Satan doesn't get the same type of loving father discipline. Adam being punished by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till, the, till you return to the ground. From out of it you were taken, from you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. He doesn't, he doesn't respond in anger to this. He doesn't try to justify anything. He doesn't argue with God. He doesn't, like Cain, say this is too hard. He's heard everything and he responds in faith. He says, I believe this. I believe that somebody's coming to fix what I've done. And to demonstrate my belief, as an example of my belief, I look to my, my wife now, who to this point doesn't have an official name that we're aware of, and names her Eve. Names her Eve because he believes that the Redeemer is coming from her. When we see in chapter 4 here in, in the next couple of weeks that Eve has a man, she also expresses the same type of faith. Believing that this man given to her is the Redeemer. I believe they walk out of the garden Christians in, in, in terms that we use today. Because they've expressed faith in what God has told them. It's not now based on, all right, when you leave the garden, you've got, you've got to be good. You've got to perform. It's believe what I've told you. And it's the same way for how we're saved today. And, I, and I've told you before, people in the Old Testament are saved the same way as people in the New Testament. They're saved based on faith. Tyson referenced it this morning when he talked about the hall of faith. You walk through that. Every single individual in the Old Testament is believing things that God has said to them. The difference is, is that as we move through redemptive history, God says more, and so we have more to believe in, right? So it's all based on the work of Jesus, but it's what God is communicating to us that we're to respond in faith to. And as we move through redemptive history, God continues to tell us more about his plan. Who has the biggest advantage up to this point in, in hearing things that God has said? Us. We have the most amount that God has said to believe in. The advantage is, is, is to us. Okay? But salvation is still the same. It's believing what God has said. It's never tied to our performance. But fighting sin and pursuing holiness, while it's not, it's not an attempt to prove myself to God or to other people. All right? so, so we don't try to fight sin to prove ourselves to God that, it, that we're worth loving. Nor do we try to prove to others, other people that we're worth loving by God. It's an effort to replace sin with the things that, that, of God that I now believe are better for me. Right, so, so I fight sin not to earn favor with God, not to make God want to love me. The scripture tells me that God loved me when I was the least desirable, when I was the least lovable, when I was his enemy. So certainly nothing I can do now would make him love me more. So I don't do things to earn God's love. I don't do anything to prove myself to you that I deserve to be loved by God. Instead, I fight sin to remove things that are no longer good for me because I don't believe them to be good for me anymore. I believe that things of God are better for me now. The problem with Adam and Eve's fig leaves, so, so this is their best attempt to, to present themselves to God. The problem is there's no bloodshed with their fig leaves. Like That's the picture that we get from how God clothes them and how they clothe themselves. When, when people believe that going to heaven is based on their good works, the problem is there's no bloodshed with their good works. Here, here's a sacrifice. Here's some good things that I've done. But the problem is, is that your sin deserves death, right? We get that truth in 
Hebrews 9.22. That without the, we won't look it up, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. So, so the reason that good works don't work is because there's no bloodshed with them. And Adam and Eve's best attempts at being good, their best attempt at performance, falls far short. We today as Christians do not try to prove ourselves to God. We're trying to embrace the things that are good for us. William Arnott says, The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that one has sin and the other one has none, but that the one takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sin. So, so the difference between a saved person and an unsaved person is not that one has sin and the other one has no sin. The major difference between the two is that an unbeliever clings to his sin and argues for his sin against God, while the other one clings to God and argues against his sin with God. That's the major difference. There's a heart change. There's a new nature that's been placed within us. So my salvation is based on faith, not performance. Next, my stability is under attack by the enemy. If I'm going to take responsibility for my sin, it means that I have to recognize that I am under attack. My stability in the Christian faith is under attack by the enemy. First, there is an attack for my mind. There is an attack for my mind. Even as Christians, Satan seeks to deceive and lie to us about what God's word says. In John 8:44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's the one who seeks to attack us, and he attacks our minds with his lies. In 2 Corinthians eleven three, this is Paul talking to Christians. I am afraid. That as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, are we in danger of losing our salvation? No, we don't believe that here. We don't believe that you can lose your salvation. We believe that God uses warnings about falling away from the faith to ensure that you don't lose your salvation. So Paul says here, I'm afraid that the serpent can deceive you to where you wander from Christ. And this warning that I am giving you, the Holy Spirit is going to use it to keep you on the right path. In James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, there's a battle in our minds whenever sin is present and the temptation to sin is present. In James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. There's a battle within the mind about our, about our actions. And then in Second John chapter 1, there's only one chapter. Um, so this will say Second John verse 7 through 9. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. We need to recognize that our minds are under attack. Our minds must be renewed. Obviously, the simple answer is that we need to be in God's word, but it also involves us surrounding ourselves with people that can speak God's word to us, that can encourage us. We work together to stay stable in the faith. There's also an attack against our bodies. 
sin gets carried out in the body, right? So Romans 6, 12 through 14 tells us not to yield our bodies to sin, instead to yield our bodies to righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife and the responsibility to come together as a husband and wife. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Right, so, so Paul encourages husbands and wives to stay together, to stay physically together, so that there's no temptation. Our bodies, in a sense, have to be caged. Job 31.1, Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I've made a covenant with my eyes to not look at another woman. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm intentionally protecting myself. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul intends to not let himself become disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9, 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. There's an attack for our mind. There's an attack for our body. There's also an attack for our dependence. Satan wants us to to not depend on God, instead to depend on ourselves, a, a cry out for pride. We must be reminded that we must become, uh, we must not become impatient or discontent with God's plan. And then lastly here, my salvation is based on faith, my stability is under attack, and then my perseverance requires personal action. If I'm going to persevere in the faith, it requires me taking personal action in my life. I must admit the real threat of present, past, and future sin and deal with each accordingly. I must admit the real threat of present sin past sin and future sin and deal with each accordingly do you realize that past sin can be just as detrimental to us as anything that we face in the future if we continue to struggle with the guilt of decisions made in the past and we continue to not yield to what god's word says that if we confess our sins he's faithful and just to forgive us if we fail to forgive ourselves we allow past sins to weigh heavy on us and to hold us back from progressing in our faith and being useful for God's kingdom. We continue to cower in the back and say, I'm of no use. My, my past sins, what I've done in the past, renders me useless now. Now, there's at times where, where choices that we make may disqualify us from certain things, yes. But if we're, we're faithful to confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us of our sins. There's present sin that needs to be confessed. There's also future sin that needs to be avoided. And that means intentional effort on our part to confess it when we when we do it, when we yield to it, and then also to take measures for the future to make sure that we don't continue to yield ourselves to it. Bible also encourages us not to give a sin, uh, give sin a base of operation in our life. That we don't give Satan what we we might refer to as a beachhead, a place to to initiate a plan of operation. He he penetrates into our life and now he's got a working point, a a place of operation to now funnel into the rest of our life. Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Fighting sin means taking it seriously and preventing opportunities for us to engage in it. I must meditate on the truth that Christ, not sin, offers true satisfaction for life. It's Christ, not sin. John 10.10, Jesus says, I'm the one 
that offers abundant life. I'm the one that offers abundant life, not anything tied to sin. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Therefore, are good. Psalm 16, 11. This is a great passage that I was reading this morning, reminding us of the goodness of Christ and why we should cling to Christ. Why they should have clung to the trees in the garden and not the one tree. Psalm 16:11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's not a God who's seeking to kill our joy. That's not a God that's holding us back. That's not a God that, that as Satan would say, is not good. The God who wants to give us everything that's good and wants to withhold those things that would harm us. Ultimately, I must realize that making war against sin means making changes, means changing my mind where sin begins and then changing my lifestyle where sin is carried out. These are things that we need to realize as we see ourselves as Adam and Eve leaving the garden, as we continue to journey through Genesis. These are things that we have to take into account. We are leaving the confines of the safety of the Garden of Eden. We are now what's part of a fallen creation. And there is a real fight against sin that has to happen. The application for us today. The second chance for Adam and Eve was for them to place their contentment. The second chance for Adam and Eve was for them to place their contentment in what God would make available to them. The second chance for Adam and Eve was for them to place their contentment in what God would make available to them. It was a faith response, not a performance response. Their second chance wasn't to be given another thing to not eat of. The second chance was really what was at the heart of the first chance. To believe what I'm telling you. To believe that I am what is good for you. And so the second chance as they leave the garden is to now put their faith and trust in what they should have put their faith and trust the first time. To believe or to find contentment in what God would make available to them. Let me read this, this last little paragraph to you. We ultimately worship that which we believe brings meaning to our life, good provision for our needs, and hope and refuge during times of distress. Let me read that to you again. We ultimately worship that which we believe brings meaning to our life, good, good provision for our needs, and hope and refuge during times of distress. We serve what we believe will take care of us. God has designed it so that we would find our ultimate contentment in the way he fulfills all these needs for us. Sin arises when we replace the giver of all good things with false gods that deceive us with their promises. We must learn contentment in God's goodness and his ways. Paul demonstrates this for us in Philippians 4 where he says, I've learned to be content in whatever situation I find myself in. I am content with the giver of all good things being sovereign over my life. I'm believing everything that he says as my circumstances fluctuate, as they go up and down, as, as I'm in good times and bad times, I'm content believing in what the giver of all good things has communicated to me. 
we believe in God, and any time sin arises, the, the, the ploy of sin is to convince us that it can meet our needs better than God can. We're gonna, I'm going to pray real quick, and then, and, and then, and then we're going we're gonna to talk about some, some, some real application and time for us as a church family. So let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the truth that continues to flow out of Genesis 3. We are thankful, as we've sung about already this morning, that Christ has come. He is the remedy for sin. And Father, we recognize that while we look to the future and and we hope in the eradication of sin, when sin is completely removed and we are partaking of the tree of life for eternity, we look forward to that day. We know that in the meantime, sin continues to dwell here on this earth and we have a real fight against it. And so, Father, in the same way that Adam and Eve stepped out of the garden into a tarnished, fallen world, we recognize that we are born into that. And, Father, I pray that as we, we prepare for another week that we would take responsibility for our choices and for the sin that lays before us. God, I pray that we would make intentional effort to avoid sin this week, to rely on, on accountability partners and, and friends who can help us in that fight against sin. God, help us to fight for contentment in the things that you've communicated to us. God, help us to find joy in knowing that that you are a God who is good, who has pleasures forevermore ready to hand out to us. Help us from the advantage point of seeing that Satan is evil and that sin is evil and that it all leads to destruction and permanent punishment by you. From that vantage point, help us to to see that the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us is far superior, greater than anything in this world. Help us to walk in the truth and reality of that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.